Well, we're continuing looking at 1 Corinthians 12 through 13, and we come upon verses that you've probably heard quite often. Uh, this was not tied in in any way because of our series in the main service, it just happened to. But many times when people hear this, they hear these verses in the context of a wedding. And I think Paul, if he'd known how that would have been, the way they've been used, he kind of would have been like, that wasn't really the point of these verses. Um, in fact, as we go through them, these verses are more kind of meant to be an exhortation, meant to be a challenge, not to be, oh, isn't that wonderful. Now, they are wonderful verses, and we will see that, but as we remember the context, we remember what's going on is the Corinthians have over-evaluated or over-emphasized certain spiritual gifts, and they thought, well, I'm more spiritual, I'm more holy, I'm a better Christian than you because of the gift that I've been giving them. And yet Paul has been showing them, no, 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 we all have been given the Spirit. We all who trust in Christ are one. So there's not one Christian who's better than the other. And the fact that you have different gifts is because of the Spirit's gift to you, not because of your betterness or your worseness. And then last week we focused on you need all of those other gifts you cannot go out alone as well. They need your gift. You can't go, well, mine's worthless, mine's unimportant. We need everyone. And Paul is wanting them to see this. And yet, there's one essential ingredient about all of this that he hasn't mentioned yet. And he's going to mention it now. It's the more excellent way. No matter what your spiritual gift, the most excellent way is love. You can have all these other things, but if you don't have love, you actually don't have it. It'd be like having a blueberry pie with the very best crust, the most amazing filling, the essentially whipped whipped cream. You can't have blueberry pie without whipped cream. And yet not having blueberries. Well, it's not a blueberry pie if you don't put blueberries in it. Or the other side, it's not to say you can go the other way. Well, here's the thing of blueberries. There's the best blueberry pie we've ever had. Well, no, you, you need all the other stuff. And yet, the essential ingredient for all of it to make a blueberry pie is blueberries. Paul's saying the essential thing for being someone who honors God is love. You can have everything else, but if you don't have love, you don't have a life that's honoring God. And we'll read the whole thing today because it's not that long, but we'll look at half of these verses today and the next half next week. We normally start on my right, your left, so we'll switch it up. We'll start over here, my left, your right. John, would you read 12, the end of 31, where it says, and I will show you through verse 3, and then Joseph, would you read 13, 4 through 7, and then Marie, would you read 13, 8 through 13? And I will show, I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sorry, I 
We're verse 8 to the end. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of my childhood behind me. For now we, only, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the praise to be his name. All right, so here in these first set of verses, we see the essential nature of love. And Paul uses three different comparisons, three different sets of statements to show that Love is of the greatest value. And it's important to recognize that he's not saying, well, here's a bad thing, but love is better than that bad thing. In fact, some of these things are very good, but they are not what they should be without love. And first he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And most likely he talks, he begins with tongues because that was one of the major issues that the Corinthian church was dealing with. So he begins there. You know, this thing that they have elevated to being the supreme measure of spirituality. He says, well, if I can do that, if I can speak in the men of tongues, different languages, and then it's the question, by the tongue of angels, does he actually mean a language that angels speak in or not? Uh, our charismatic friends will often say, yes, there's this angelic heavenly language, and they'll say it's a prayer language, our non Charismatic friends pour out that a lot of this in here has a hyperbole, like the next portion, I have all knowledge. Well, Paul doesn't really think any person can have all knowledge. So they say, well, this one's hyperbole as well. It's just saying, well, you could speak in this other thing. Either way, the point is still clear. If you are doing this, but you don't have love, what does he say? This is probably one of the most famous ones. All right, what's a noisy gong? Children's toys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think Sarah said children's toys. <laughs> Going on and on and on. You find the batteries and take them out. Oh, doesn't work. Sorry. <laughs> Wish you could play it some more, but it's broken. Too hard to fix. Something that drives you crazy. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say... My gift of tongues becomes a noisy gong. He says, I become a noisy gong. My whole life is affected. Not just this one aspect of my life. If I am living without love, my whole life stops being what God calls me to be. Well, second, Paul raises the possibility of having the gift of prophecy, knowing all mysteries, all knowledge. Now, he even talks about having a faith that moves mountains. And there he's probably referring back, we're not going to turn to all these verses, but where Jesus says, Matthew 21, 21, that faith is a mustard seed. You could say to this mountain, go here or go there, and it will do it. Now, I, I think Jesus was on some level speaking hyperbole, but Paul said, hey, you could do this. But he's going to show without love, it's nothing. Now, he also mentions these prophecies, this knowledge, and I think it's purposeful, we're here, just flip back, or maybe you don't have to flip, but chapter 12, verse 8. Because there he says, For to one is given the spirits, 
through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, another, faith, and another, in verse, I jump to verse 10, to another, prophecy. So all these things he's saying, he's just not picking them up at random. He's saying, look, you all think you're better because you're spiritual gifts. So let's say you have it. Not just do you have it. You have it to the utmost. You're not just prophetic. You know all mysteries. You have all knowledge. Anyways, you're really gifted. And people today like to boast in their gifts. They like to say, whatever field they're in, look, I'm the best. I can do all this. And yet, what does Paul say about this one? Yeah, I am nothing. So in other words, external manifestations of giftedness in your life are not equivalent to being a godly person in your inner life. I put on the notes there, we've mentioned this several times in the series, false teachers. Matthew 7 talks about how they will prophesy, it says here in my name, and do mighty works in my name. But they, one day Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. External manifestations are nothing. Or, think of Judas. In Luke 9, 6, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, and they do miraculous works. They preach in Jesus' name. People are healed. It doesn't say all of them did it except Judas, because they really kind of knew from the beginning he was a squib. Is that what you call him in Harry Potter? And he's the one who actually can't do it. Everyone knows he's not the real thing. He doesn't have the power. No, even Judas, I mean, when they get to the night in which Jesus was portrayed, and Jesus says, it's the one who dips his hand in with me, they don't all go, it's Judas. We've seen it coming. I mean, he's so bad. No. They all go, is it me? Judas did everything with them. Externally, until at three years, externally, everything looked like Judas was just like everyone else. And yet, what does it say? He loved money. He didn't have a love for God and others. He loved himself and money. And that's what it's getting in here, getting here and saying here. I do want, um, so I should have given this to someone earlier. David, I'm going to say a few things, but could you turn to John 13, 35? And while you're turning there, notice what he says. He doesn't just say, I become nothing. He says, I am Nothing. Now, I think that's really interesting because in our culture, people will often say, don't let anybody ever tell you you're nothing. Don't let anybody say you're nobody. You matter. And yet the God of the universe says, you know what? If you don't have love, you're nobody. If you don't love, you're a zero. Nothing. Your life does not live up to what it should be if you don't love. And again, we go, wow, maybe this wasn't the encouraging wedding chapter we were hoping for. But this is so essential. This is what Jesus says, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Yeah. By this, you will know my, you're my disciples. Love for one another. Now, I used the illustration earlier of a blueberry pie. And I already mentioned this, but you can't go the other way. We don't now sing... Well, all we need is love. That's not true either. 
We can't just say, well, so what Jesus is saying is love. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you love people. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you love people. That's all we need. No, Jesus is not saying that. He's going to say a lot of other things. And even in these verses, he's going to say love is known by being of the truth, of not delighting in evil. And so he's showing us, though, you can have all these external giftings and yet not have love and be nothing. So I want to pause. What are giftings that people tend to boast about and think, this makes me great? Or skills? Professional athletes. Physical abilities. Okay, physical talent. Sometimes quite incredible. Especially on the professional level. Yeah, things we elevate. Oh, that person, we're going to get to that next one. Charity in a minute. I think Instagram is a good way to boast about travel, food, and bodies. Yeah. Yeah, we tend to do that quite a bit. Well, let's look at this third one. He says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now we're going to turn and look at these. We'll turn there. Let's turn to Luke chapter 12, 32 through 34. Because Paul goes away from the giftings he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. And he ties more into Jesus' teachings. You may be familiar with kind of the context in Luke 12. Uh, it begins with the parable, or the section kind of begins with the parable, the rich fool who thinks, you know what, I'm so wealthy, I have so much, I'll just build larger barns, and then I'll basically retire, and life is set. I can do whatever I want. I have enough money to live on till I die. And yet God requires his soul, says, that very night. And it says, well, what is of all, all these goods? It, then notice what it says in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now God says that person is a fool. And then following this is the statement of not being anxious, talking about money. And then jump down to verses 32 through 34. Keith, could you read those verses for us? Luke 12, 32 through 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Yeah, so here, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Well, that's what Paul says. This person does that. They sell it and give it all away. Or flip over just a couple chapters to... Luke chapter 18, another well-known story. A young man approaches Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies, Well, why do you call me good? And then he says, You know the commandments. And then he lists the, what we call the second table of the law after the first four. But it's interesting. Does anyone remember? Jesus leaves one out. Which one does he leave out? Yeah, you shall not covet. Which, 
I think it was purposeful. I don't think Jesus forgot. I think he was trying to help this young man go, wait, 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 you forgot one. And then the like, mirror, oh, wait, you shall not covet. Huh, maybe he left that one out on purpose. And Jesus tells him, notice what it says, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, or the man said, I've kept all these things, sorry. And then verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So Paul is basically taking these two teachings of Jesus back in 1 Corinthians 13 and saying, so was Jesus saying that really you will know your spiritual if you sell it all and give it to the poor? What might be some reasons people sell it all and give it to the poor and they're not actually good? Reasons. Okay, so why would that be bad? Because you're taking away your life. I mean, if it's giving away stuff, you're going to kill yourself. Oh, okay, you're going to kill yourself. Okay, yep, yep. Um, Asceticism. Okay, what's asceticism, Joseph? It's like, uh, like purposefully living a harsher, self, self-masticating, uh, I'm using that word right, uh, life. Uh, so like St. Saint, Saint Francis and many, like I think, Catholics and maybe some Protestants, four to five hundred years ago, that was real popular, um, and, and even more, more recently. And so it's just like like it, that. It's more holy to uh, live a hard, to put yourself in a harsher life, to live in poverty and willful uh, poverty. Minimalism yeah. is all the rage now. Get rid of everything you've got and live on as little as you can. Minimalist. Yeah. Yeah. And- as Joseph was saying, the issue with asceticism is not choosing. If you want to be a minimalist, great. But what is your motivation? And that's what Paul is getting at here. What's your motivation for giving it all away? Is it that, well, these things are evil in and of themselves? Well, God gave us good things to enjoy. Is it guilt? Oh, I, I feel guilty for being so rich. Well, you shouldn't feel guilty for being rich. That you're dishonoring God. So there's bad motivations. And here he says, look. I could give it all away, and yet we've just noted minimalists are, what do we expect of rich people? If they don't give away, oh, they're selfish. If they give a lot away, oh, they're really wonderful. They're such philanthropists. Well, that's lovers of philo, like Philadelphia, love, anthropos, uh, anthropology, man. They're lovers of people, maybe. Maybe they're lovers of self, and they want to be known as a philanthropist. <laughs> the issue is not what are you doing Though again, Paul's not denying what we do is important. He's saying, what is the motivation? What is driving your actions? And he says, if I give it all away, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So you just emptied all the accounts, you sold everything, and then gave away all of the proceeds. And Jesus said, you know what that adds up to? Zilch. If your motivation was not love. Beyond that, <coughs> he talks about you could give up your body to be burned. Now, I mean, that's one of my favorite Bible stories. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say, I'm going to obey no matter what, even if we get burned. Isn't that the epitome of knowing you love God, that you're willing to die? I mean, isn't that like the crucial, the core element, willing to be a martyr? 
He says, well, no. Not if you didn't do it out of love for God. Well, so how could someone die for God seemingly and not actually be doing it for God? To get a better eternity. Yeah. It's not about God. It's still about self. It's still about trying to please or earn God's favor. In other words, as we've said numerous times, God cares not only about our actions, but also our motives. Now, Paul here is writing to this context. Let's broaden the context. What might be other things that we look to as they are a really godly person? But yet if they're not done with love, Paul would add any of these other things. That's nothing. It gains you nothing. You become nothing. So what are things we look at as clear like they really love the Lord? Yeah. Seems have, like they spend a lot of time in it. Keith and I. I was have, going to say preachers. I didn't mean to take it personally. <laughs> it's a, true. A, a, lot of, a lot of preachers. Especially rock star preachers. Mm-hmm. They've got a podcast, they're published, they've got a big church. Mm-hmm. Eloquent prayers. Oh, yes. What was that, Sarah? Eloquent prayers. King Jane prayers, yes. Yeah, we've probably all known people who they know their Bible better than you do. And then you get in any kind of theological discussion, man, I don't know half that stuff. And yet their life is devoid of any type of love. Or they pray really well. Or a big one today is, oh, do you see how engaged they are in worship? Oh, that person loves God. I mean, they are just so into it when we're in the worship service. Again, we're not negating any of these. I hope you are into it when we're worshiping. I hope you do know your Bible. I hope you can pray eloquently. We're not denying any of those. Don't hope you're all preachers. But nonetheless, where is the essential ingredient? You're looking at it, you're going, where's the blueberries? It's not a blueberry pie unless we got the blueberries in it. It's not what God delights in unless there's love in the mix. And so all of these things are are good, but they're not essential. Love is the essential. Uh, One man, Tom Schreiner, he writes, spiritual experiences aren't the measure of our godliness. We might think we're very close to God when we feel close to God, when powerful emotions of love sweep over us. Emotions like this are not bad. God uses such experiences in a powerful way in our lives. But we should not think we are truly close to God if we prize emotional experiences with Him, but are regularly irritable, crabby, and short-tempered at home and as we interact with people. Sometimes y'all get quotes because they cut me deep. So, self-confession there. Um, I, there's one man I like to read. His name is David French. You may or may not agree with his political outlook. But this last year... He was somewhat attacked because of the way he approaches politics. And at the end of the article, 
This is our other Christians attacking him. He's a believer. The person said, civility and decency are secondary values in political discourse. Which sadly is a direct contradiction of what we're saying here. No, they're not. Take out civility and decency and just say, being loving is never secondary to how we engage our politics. It's always primary. Whether we win, lose, or draw, or get really close to a draw and get other things to get the votes, it matters how we engage. As Christians, we should be known for being loving no matter the sphere we are in. And we're not going to flip to all these verses, but notice on the bottom of the first page that this is a command throughout the New Testament. This isn't like, and even if it was the only place, it would still matter, but it's not like this is one time, well, love's an important thing, but really all this other stuff, over and over, there's one, two, three, four, five, six different verses along with Jesus' command. The emphasis is love is what matters. But I do want to turn to 1 John chapter 3, because there we see the emphasis, because sadly... The human heart is very good at being slippery. It's very good at going, well, yes, I love God. But love for God, God is seen in certain ways. Sarah, would you read 1 John 3.10? By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Nor love his brother katie could you read 14 through 18 of that chapter chapter three we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers whoever does not love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And there he goes on in chapter 4. We're not going to read all these verses, but he has extended sections again saying, love is so essential. And Stan, could you just read for us verse 20 and 21 of chapter 4? Someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. <clears throat> and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And all, the, and all that, we can't be like the Pharisee and go, well, who's my brother? <coughs> well, who is in front of you? That's your brother. Who's your neighbor? Whoever is in front of you. That is who you're called to love. And they're quite clear. It's been clear by Jesus, Paul here. You can't say, oh, I have this deep love for God. But people really annoy me. <laughs> well, <clears throat> loving God means loving others. Even the ones that annoy you. So, Paul is going to make this even more clear, though, because he's going to give... A list of 15 different things 
that show love. This is our next section. We won't get through all of it today, most of it though. The characteristics of love. Uh, he gives us two positives, then he gives us eight negatives, and then wraps up with a positive on the last negative, and then four positive alls, which we won't get to those today. But here, we have to realize this isn't like everything that describes love, but it is some things. And it, this is important because today, a common definition of love is, love is love. I don't know what grade you heard it, but I heard it quite often from my English teachers. You cannot use the word in the definition to define the word you're defining. <laughs> That's circular reasoning. And you especially could not use the exact same word. Love is love means nothing. We have to define what love is. Well, what is love? Well, love is patient, is our first one. Now, all of these are in a context. And we have lots of verses, so let me pause. I'm going to pass some of these out. All right, Christina, could you turn to Proverbs 19, 11? Katrina, could you turn to Romans 2, 4 through 5? Arnold, Matthew 5, 45. I'm just going on the back page if you're like, I got to remember this verse. Just circle or put your finger on the verse. Elaine, could you um, turn to Numbers 25, 7? Emma, could you turn to James 4, 2? Jerry, 1 Corinthians 1, 12. Back over to you, John. Colossians 2, 18. Joseph, Proverbs 27, 2. Marie, 1 Corinthians 7, 36. All right, Briggs, y'all can tag team. I know how hard it is to read and hold a baby. So why don't y'all just take 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24. Uh, we're getting almost all the way around. Tracy, Acts 17, 16, Keith, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, and David, Ephesians 4, 15. All right. Everyone's got to read this morning. woo -hoo. All right. Love is patient. Now, the context here is not primarily meaning this person in front of me in the grocery line has just had three items price checked. I'm about to go crazy. Now, that, it definitely doesn't exclude that, but the idea is forbearance. The idea is someone more like someone you're in a relationship with. Now you might be in a relationship, you might be getting very close to that person who's in front of you getting the third price check, but the point is more, do you forbear with the people you're most close to? Proverbs 19.11 if you could read that. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Alright, the word slow to anger so the Old Testament was at one point translated into Greek. They call it the LXX or the Septuagint. It's the same word. Slow to anger. That's what patience is talking about. Not, I'm waiting for my internet to download the song. Oh, I'm patient. No, it's, am I slow to anger with others? And for the Corinthians, remember they've dealt with a lot of stuff in this letter. Hey, what about those brothers in Christ who are saying, you can't go eat that meat or buy the meat from the temple? Do you get angry at them? Oh, don't you understand? Are you slow to anger? Do you listen? Do you try to help them understand their freedom in Christ? Or do you just blow up? You don't understand what Christ came to do. I'm going to do this. No, we're slow to anger. That's what patience, that's what love is. Love is kind. So not only does God's patience that we should have lead us to be 
forbearing or slow to anger. It also is positive. We're kind to them. We don't just, okay, I'm not going to do something. (laughs) I actively do something good for you. And this is really the way God responds to sin. He doesn't give us wrath. He forbears. And he still gives us kindness. Uh, Romans 2, 4 through 5. So there, God is forbearing, he's patient, he's kind. Specifically, Matthew 5, 45 tells us. So that you may be sons of your Father, who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God is kind. He still lets the sun rise on people who are rebelling against him. He still sends rain on their land. God is kind to those who deserve his punishment. Uh, Then it goes on, and it's going to give us eight negative statements. The first one being that love is not jealous or envious. Now, the word here, the Greek word is zeloo. It can be used kind of positively or negatively. So, it's not jealous or envious. It's basically, it does not seek. But seek could be good or bad. I put on your page 1 Corinthians 12, 31, 14, 1, and 39, because in each one of those, you can see 12, 31 right there, it says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire is the same word. You're zealous for something. What are you zealous for? Well, they should be zealous, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. That's not a bad thing. Uh... Numbers 25, 7. Could you read that for us? Yes. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took the spear in his hand. All right. So here, the children of Israel are sinning. They're rebelling against the Lord. And Phinehas raises up and he stops them. Literally, he kills them so they'll stop. And it says that he was zealous for God's glory, for God's name. Same word. It's saying this is a good thing. But we can also be zealous, not for God, but for ourselves. And that's the negative use. When the zeal is not about others, not about for God's glory, it's like, well, I'm zealous for myself and for what I want. That's what James 4, 2 is talking about. Yeah, in there, talking about us coveting, we can, we want, we're, same word, zealous, we get, you can't get it, so we fight and quarrel. And the point is, you can't have a spirit of love if at the same time you're wanting what other people have. If you're zealous for yourself, then inherently you're not loving. And in this context, the Corinthians can't be loving one another if they're jealous, they're zealous for the other people's spiritual gifts. Why well, won't you have I want what you get. They're not loving at all. So love is not jealous or envious. Number four, love does not brag. So here, 
We don't rub in the face of others the good things God gave us. We don't boast in our spiritual pedigree, pedigree 1 Corinthians 1.12. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So here they are, they're boasting off. Well, I, I'm really holy. I'm following what the Apostle Paul says. No, oh, no, 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 I'm better. I follow Paulus. And then there's the one group, well, I follow Christ. I'm not following these inferior apostles. I go back to the source. And yet all of this is contrary to love if you're boasting in what God has given you or boasting in the pedigree of where you have come to know the Lord. And this has been a major issue in the letter. In chapter 3, they were boasting of their wisdom. In chapter 4, sorry, chapter 8, they were boasting of their knowledge. This section, some of them are boasting because they think they're more spiritual than others. And so Paul is saying in contrast, love does not boast about what you have. Rather, it focuses on others. Here, fifth one, love is not arrogant or puffed up. Now, Paul uses the same word in Colossians 2.18, so if you could read that for us. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on read, uh, skip one, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in about detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So this person is puffed up. You know, just imagine in a balloon with helium. The more it gets in there, the bigger it starts to go up. This puffed up person thinks, well, I'm better in Colossians 2.18. They think they're better because, as we mentioned earlier, asceticism. Well, I've denied these things. I'm better than you spiritually. Oh, I've had these great heavenly visions with angels. I'm more spiritual than you. And yet, Paul's saying love is not about that at all. Joseph, do you have Proverbs 27.2? Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own mouth. So in all this, we don't need to negate the good gifts of God that he's given us either. If someone says, wow, you were really well organized. You helped the church do whatever. You don't need to go, well, I didn't do that. No, no, it was no good. You say, well, yeah, thank you. Just say thanks. God allowed you to do that. He's given you a gift. So love is not boasting of anything we have, thinking we're superior. And neither are we looking down when they have their faults because we should say, but for the grace of God, Go I. Uh, number six, love does not behave improperly. Love is not rude. Now here, it's kind of odd verse, but we'll explain it. First Corinthians seven thirty six. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. Uh, so here what's going on is this man is engaged and the way he's treating her, it's causing there to be uh, her affections to be roused, you might say. And yet, he's not marrying her. Well, you're behaving improperly. Uh, as, <laughs> as Doug Wilson once said, don't preheat the oven if you're not going to put in the roast. If you're going to do it, have a purpose. Don't be encouraging something that you're not going to fulfill. So, fiancé, act on what you're doing. Marry her. Don't behave improperly towards her. So, love here is not behaving in whatever context improperly towards others, leading them to sin. 
It's not going to cause them to do what is wrong. Uh, big one, number seven, love does not seek its own. Whichever Briggs has it, could you read 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, and then verse 33? All things are lawful, but, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then verse 33? So here Paul's talking about food sacrificed to idols. And he says, look, it might be lawful. I might be able to do it, but I'm not going to seek my own. Love says, well, what about others? And then verse 33, he's talking about salvation. Yeah, I could say, this is my right. But I'm not going to do that if it's going to hinder the gospel. I do these things that other people may be saved. And yet, as you know, this is quite opposite from our American mindset, Craig Blomberg says, In an age in which demanding one's rights is considered a virtue, we must read again and again that love is not self-seeking. Von Roberts has a helpful book, short, it's called True Friendship. And in it, he talks about self-help. Help. And he quotes an author who says, When you make friends with yourself, you begin a love affair that lasts a lifetime. Self-love is the prerequisite of loving others. But Vaughn Robertson states, The irony is that these books fail to recognize that the solution they offer is the very heart of the problem. Our self-centeredness is what destroys our relationships. They cannot be fixed from within, but rather need a deeper love that comes from outside ourselves, the love of God in Christ. True love does not turn in first to turn out True love looks up first and says, how has God loved me? That is what's going to compel me to love others, not seeking myself. That's the exact opposite of what we need to love others. Love, number eight, does not get easily angered. Acts 17, 16. So Paul here is provoked. He's angered. He's looking around. He's seeing all these idols, and it makes him upset. It should. It's kind of like Phineas. Look at this. These people are worse. They're so eager to worship, but they're missing the main thing. But in our relationships with one another, sometimes it's not that they're worshiping idols. It's that they didn't do things the way we wanted, or they didn't do them at the time we wanted, and we are easily angered. And Paul says, love is not like that. As one man says, it's not touchy with a blistering temper barely hidden beneath the surface of a respectable facade, just waiting for an offense, real or imagined, at which to take umbrage. Number nine, love does not consider or think evil. Now, the idea here is one doesn't have, this is dating myself, a Rolodex file of every incident that's happened in the past that they can scroll to. February 1st, 2006, don't you remember when you did this? March 13th, 2020, you did this. And you're remembering, or they're reminding you, of event after event. And you're going, sometimes you tell me you can't memorize anything. 
You sure have a pretty good memory. How do you remember all this stuff? And you're like, man, this is better than like HD, highest plasma screen TV I've ever seen. You're like, that's actually how it happened. And you, you pretty much nailed it. Love doesn't have that. Love puts the erase button and says, as much as I can. Now, we can't forget everything. It's impossible. But as much as I can, it hits erase or it says, I'm not going to pull that tape out. Now I'm really dating myself. I'm not going to go online and connect to the live streaming on-demand video. There, I've updated it. To what just happened or happened a year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Love is not easily here. This is what, or love does not remember. 2 Corinthians 5.19. This is what God is like. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Yeah, God, when he sees us in Christ, does not pull out all of the old files. He doesn't reckon them against us. He doesn't go, okay, new incident, let's bring up all the past and rehash everything you've ever done and why you should just feel horrible right now. Love doesn't keep that list. It throws it away. The last negative is that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now, this is really important because sometimes people say, well, they're my kids. I just love them so much. Isn't it funny when they cuss? (laughs) No, it's not. It's not funny to see even little children rebel against God. We don't rejoice in unrighteousness. Love never says, well, I know God had to send a son to die for it, but I love you so much that I'm just going to go along because I love you. Well, no. Love never rejoices in sin. It never says, I'm going to applaud what you're doing. Love can never do that. But lastly, in contrast, love rejoices with the truth. Ephesians 4.15 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head of Christ. Truth and love go together. We're often told, hey, what we need to do to love each other is we need to just just put down all these differences and just come together. So, well, we should have kindness. We should have a measure of love to those who all have different faiths. We can never in love say, well, we all just basically believe the same thing. We don't. Some people say, when you die, you just end. Some people say when you die, you get to come back for as many chances until you finally get it right. Some people say when you die, we're all going to heaven. We're not all saying the same thing. God says it's appointed a man once to die and then the judgment. In love, we can't just go, well, it's all the same. Love not only does not rejoice in unrighteousness, it rejoices in the truth. Now that's a long list. We did 11. I felt convicted on about 13. Um, what kind of stuck out to you as we read this? And it doesn't have to be you felt convicted by it. But, or why is love such an essential ingredient? Or do any of these need more emphasis that we did not emphasize them enough? I think the church church today is being challenged to overlook unrighteousness. Um, and our, we are called to compromise in love. Uh, 
Love is love. Love is love. Uh, to love the sinner, absolutely. But in loving somebody who's in rebellion against God, oftentimes we do not speak against the sin. And by so doing, we end up loving the sin. And that church is malformed. Yeah. Other comments as we wrap up? I think it's amazing how much our culture fuels bragging, arrogance, being puffed up, just uh, and the idea that or the truth that love is counter to all of that is like it reminds me of Galatians five talks about like the spirit is in opposition to the, the works of the flesh. I forgot, what, I forgot the verb it uses there. but it's, and, and it's just throughout the day we're constantly fed with our flesh, just being in the world in that way of thinking, and the Spirit's counter to that in the same way love is counter to this, to this just inherent uh, boasting and raising yourself up. Reminds me of, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but C.S. Lewis quote about how we make men without chess. Someone can help me because I'm kind of forgetting it. But basically, we rip out everything that causes us to love, and then we say, now go be loving. <laughs> well, you can't take away all the foundations of love and then go, well, go out and be loving to one another. Well, you don't have any organs to breathe. <laughs> we just rip them all out. We're not going to be loving if we don't continue to come to the source of love, God, definitely not from looking in. Yes? I have another question on this. So I, I, they, uh, I love the Lewis quote that says, love is, love is not an emotional feeling, but a steady wish for the loved one's good as far as it can be attained. And so it's a steady wish, but it's also a sacrifice. So love is sacrificed for the other person's good as far as it can be attained. I feel like that, for me that seems more of a substance of love and I'm probably wrong, but it seems like this feels more like the, the tone of love or kind of a, a language of love, if you will. It, it, can anyone tell me here? I, it seems slightly different in saying that it, it almost there's a little bit of rebuke of sacrifice in the first few verses, and then it talks about all of the what love is supposed to are you saying verses 1 through 3 it looks like a rebuke of sacrifice? Yeah, now, yeah. I wouldn't say it's a rebuke of that. I'm saying I would say those things are worthless without the right motive. Because I would say all those things in verses 1 through 3 are good and he would encourage. I mean, he would encourage giving to the poor. He would encourage these things if you have the right motive in doing it. So maybe saying love is sacrifice is almost too surface of the definition. Because that's not dealing with the motive. And that's what, that's what yeah. this is trying to get into here. Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll end.